All right, well, um, if you are just joining us, we are studying in the book of John this morning, and we are in the end of John chapter 11, just a few verses, 45 through um, 57. And, um, you know, this week's text is completely different than last week's texts. Um, last week's text, we, we had this like long section that just told this, I, I thought it was a beautiful story of, of how like Jesus sometimes leads his people through dark places so that he can reveal more about himself and more about the life that is available to other people in him. Um, so that his, the people that he loves, like he talked about that he loved like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And so he took them to this place that that they could see his glory and, and know more about the life that's available in him. And you know what I, I said a couple weeks ago that at, in, the, in John, what we've seen is as Jesus reveals more and more about himself, as he reveals himself as the light of the world who gives life to men. And here in this text, he said that he is the resurrection and the life and that everyone who believes in him will live even if they die. You know, as, as he continues to turn up the volume on the light of who he is, we also alongside that see hostility on the rise. Um, that's been growing all the way through the book of John. And, and we, we will see that kind of reach one of the high points here in our text is we just saw this glorious depiction of Jesus per giving life and, and claiming to be life. And now we're going to see people like scheming and plotting to bring, to bring his death. You know, I think it's an important text for us this morning because in it, we're going to see the powers in the world that be. Like, um, we're going to see showing up in this is, is this council, which would have been the Sanhedrin. We're going to see the high priest. They were like the highest authority in the land of Israel apart from the Romans themselves. And I'll talk about this a little bit more. And, we're, and I think it's an important text for us because we're going into an election season. We're in this like culture where our, our political views and our personal views and everything is really polarized. We seem to just hate anybody that's not just like us. And we can get fearful and and concerned and anxious about like what's going to happen all around us because all of the powers that be seem to be spinning out of control. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You know, and this text is just such a great text, I think, for us because, um, and I hope you'll be able to see this because it tells us that similar to last week, no matter how dark things get, like God is still in control and he's still working his purposes and, and we don't have to be afraid. You know, our text is going to break out into two kind of like points this morning. They're not really different sections because what we see in this text is like the treachery of mankind and the, and the like redemptive purposes of God, like just walk side by side together in it. And that the, the, the treachery of, of humanity actually accomplishes the redemptive purposes of God. But that's what we're going to see is that we're going to see the feudal opposition of earthly powers as they raise up against Jesus. And then we're going to see the unstoppable redemption of Jesus Christ. And if you want to break those out into verses, like the feudal opposition of earthly powers is really the whole thing. And then specifically in verses 51 and 52, we'll, we'll see the unstoppable redemption of Jesus Christ. But please stand with me. Um, I'll read our text together, starting at verse 45. Actually, I'll start reading at verse 44, and then um, I'll pray, and then we'll get into our study. This is God's word for his church. Speaking about Lazarus, it says, He who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. 
Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they plan together to kill him. I'll just stop reading there. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the work of Jesus Christ who offered himself up for us so that he could gather us into one and make us his people. And um, Father, I just ask that you would accomplish those two things, that you would um, bring people out of darkness into light, that they would see um, who, who you are, that, you've, that your son died for us so that we could be made and brought into your people and into your church and that we would be built up because of that. So we just entrust this morning to you and ask that you would accomplish your purpose in it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we kind of get into this text, the first two verses kind of immediately show that, that uh, those different responses to Jesus that I was talking about. You have one group of people, these, this group of people that came to Mary to console her, that saw Lazarus raised from the dead. They believed in Jesus. But then you had another group of people who were also there I'm in verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees. And if you've been with us in, your study, in our study of the book of John, the, the Pharisees were kind of like the religious conservatives of the day. They had, they had rules for everything. And, and they were like the, kind of like the most consistent um, opponents of Jesus. And so you had these tattletalers like running off. Like, hey, like Jesus just rose a dude from the dead. And so it's creating a problem for them. And they immediately, verse 47, they convene a council. It says they convene a council um, and with, the, with the Pharisees and the chief priests. Now, it's easy just to read this, like, that term, chief priests and Pharisees, and kind of think that that's a, those are synonyms. But really, chief priests and Pharisees are about as opposite as you could get because the, the priests and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, which is this council, the Sanhedrin was this group of 70 like men that governed over the nation of Israel, and they, were, and they were almost all from a religious party called the Sadducees. Remember that song, Sadducees are Sadducee, or whatever that is? Um, don't know why that came into my head, but sorry. But the Sadducees were, were, they were kind of like the theological progressives of the day. They had aligned themselves with, with Rome. In fact, the high priest was appointed by Rome, and so all of, the, all of the Sadducees were complicit with the Roman tyrants, and the Pharisees were like the, the exact opposite end of the theological spectrum who thought that if they could just get back to enough obedience to God, that God would restore their nation. And so they hated each other. And yet, what we find here is all of a sudden, the chief priests and the Pharisees are getting together to come up with a unified plan. You know, I don't, I don't know if you read the news this week, but um, Governor Newsom uh, from California, you guys read the thing about, about him wanting to take the... So San Francisco, like, I, I don't know all the details, has, like, we're doing a bunch of homeless sweeps, and the courts in, over California said that they were, it was unconstitutional for them to, like, do these homeless sweeps, and 
until they had more like beds. Governor Newsom of California is a, is a he defined himself as a um, progressive Democrat. And what he said, which, was, which is why it made the news, did anybody see this in the news? Is that the only one? What he said, which was what made it really remarkable, is that he hopes that this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and he's going to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and he's been a guy that's been like super, super critical of the Supreme Court, and yet all of a sudden now, because there's this problem that's bigger than they have the ability to fix, like he's wanting to like align himself with the Supreme Court and take this take this uh, case all the way up there. Just similar to what's going on here, like the, the division between the Republicans and Democrats, the division between um, the right and the left, the conservatives and progressives, today was no deeper than it was then. And the fact that they're unifying around, like uh, trying to find a solution to the Jesus problem shows us how significant the problem is in their minds. And look what they say, look what the problem is. What are we doing, verse 47, for this man is performing many signs. If we, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here we have the powers that be, the political, like legislative and judicial and religious, kind of all the powers of Israel saying, this is crazy. Like Jesus keeps doing all these signs. People are believing in him. And if we let him keep doing this, everybody will start to follow him. You know, back, I think it was in chapter six, people wanted to make him like king. And so what the, 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 the council's like concern is, is that if people start to follow Jesus, it might create an insurrection and, and their whole existence is dependent upon keeping the peace for the Roman Empire. And if the Romans like look at the Sanhedrin and say like, hey, you guys aren't able to like keep it, like keep the peace here, we might just come in and take away, what is it, what did they say? Our place and our nation. You know, they're talking there about the temple, about their place of worship, that, that they're fearful that the Romans will come in and destroy the temple and what we're going to see later on and destroy all of the money they were making off the temple. They were, they're afraid that the Romans will come and like do away with them as a nation, their, their place of identity and significance and meaning and both religiously and kind of personally, all of a sudden is, is being eroded away because Jesus is offering something else. And they're like, we cannot like, tolerate the risk to our, our place, our place of security and worship and all of these things. And we cannot, we cannot tolerate the risk to our, our people, our identity. So we got to do away with them. And I think it's important for us to, you know, they're, they're dealing with it at a national level, but I, I think it's interesting like how like, desperately they're clinging to their place and their people. Their, their identity and their, like, security. And I, think, I don't think we're all that different today. Jesus comes wanting to offer something completely different. And, and they were just clinging on so tightly in spite of all of the evidence that Jesus just rose someone from the dead. And yet they're like, oh, this is too risky. We better do away with him, right? So we, we come up with this solution. Look what happens in verse 49. In verse 49, it says, uh, but a certain one of them, uh, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to him, you know nothing at all. You guys are a bunch of idiots, is what he's saying. It's interesting. We're introduced to Caiaphas, and it says, to him, and it says that he is high priest that year. Now, I got to tell you a little bit about Caiaphas, partly because it's super interesting. 
um, but partly because I think it, it'll help you feel the weight of what's going on here. Caiaphas was high priest. He was appointed by the Romans. He, he, actually, he actually was high priest for more than a year. It's not talking about that he was only high priest that year. I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. He was the son-in-law of Annas, the high priest, who became a high priest in 6 AD and reigned until like, I think it was like 14. And then, and what, and Annas was a guy who, because of his cunning and his treachery and political maneuvering, was able to establish an entire dynasty of high priests that were appointed by the Romans. So um, Annas was, was high priest and like that, what I already told you, five of his sons, his son-in-law Caiaphas and his grandson all served as high priests um, after Annas, um, basically kind of controlling the political power of Israel for, uh, I guess it was like about 50 years um, that they were in control of the political power of Israel. During that time, like Annas um, like was able to not only like kind of consolidate the political power, but he was able to make a ton of money doing it. So if you remember the story of Jesus going into the temple and turning over money changers' tables and being upset about the exchanging of money and the selling of sacrificial animals and all the money that was profiting off of that? Well, in the ancient world, like historians, I mean, ancient historians wrote that that marketplace was actually called Annas, I don't know how you say that, Annas's, Annas possessive, whatever. Annas's bazaar, Annas's marketplace, or, or sometimes they even called him Annas's booths. You know, like you would go to his, because he was making so much money and his dynasty was making so much money off of this. You know, uh, in fact, Josephus, the ancient historian, records that, that they were so greedy that the high priest group would go to the surrounding cities around Jerusalem, and they would demand the tithe from all the people there and take the tithe for themselves back in Jerusalem. So the priests that lived in each city that was supposed to live off of that tithe were all like, brought to like, poverty because Annas and his dynasty were, were like, consolidating all the power, all the money. And here they are. Caiaphas is one of them. He is a treacherous, like cunning political beast who basically comes up with the plan. And look what he says. You know nothing at all. He says, nor do you take into account, verse 50, that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. You know, it's interesting the language. When it, that language of die for the people is sacrificial language. What he's saying is like, if you guys knew what you were talking about, it would be super clear what we should do. We could either sacrifice one guy so that the whole nation could survive, or we could let this guy keep living and then the whole nation would perish. It's cold, it's calculated. You have this innocent guy, but it's expedient. Why let one guy live and put everybody else at risk? You know, there's so much irony wrapped in, in these words. The high priest saying it's expedient that one man should die for the sake of the people. But before we go on, let me just, I don't know, let me just pause here for a point of application. And now you've got the Sanhedrin, you've got the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin are, are, have the authority of the Roman Empire behind them. You've got all of the powers of the day like rising up against Jesus. And if you were of like a follower of Jesus, that fledgling group of people, and, and I mean, fortunately, I don't think they probably knew this until after the fact. But, and you knew the animosity and the cunning and the treachery that was, coming up, that was coming upon you guys as a movement. Like, how would you feel about that? 
You know, there's this fear of like, if, if like everything is rising up against us, everything is opposed to us, like what, what can we do to survive? You know, it's really interesting how this whole story kind of follows the story of Psalm chapter 2. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, as he kind of opens the book of Psalms, says this in Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Like, think about that for a second. The psalmist is saying, this is what the nations do. The nations take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. They all get together and they scheme about how we're going to throw off the fetters and cords of the Lord. We don't want to be bound by what God has to say. We want to be sovereign. We want to rule ourselves. We want to do our own thing. And the, but he starts with this question, why are they in an uproar and why are they devising a vain thing? It's emptiness. Psalmist wants to remind the people of God that when all of the nations and all of the powers join together to oppose like the kingdom of God, it's empty. It's vain. It won't have any purpose. I think we, we should remind ourselves of that as well. Like We can get really, really anxious when we see the kings of the earth take their counsel together to stand opposed to the kingdom of God and what would lead to like God's people and all people really flourishing. We can get really, really anxious and we can get really, really fearful. And, and uh, you know, the reality is, is that God does not, like, is not concerned in the least. You know, I, I kind of have this, it's football season, and I kind of have this um, picture in my mind of, of like the scene in heaven, like all, the, you've got the demonic hordes, and you've got the angelic hosts, like all going to the bar to watch like Monday Night Football, right? <laughs> they're over at Two Dogs, and they're watching this scene play out. They're watching this scene play out of like, what's going on here? And, you know, and the camera zooms in on the Sanhedrin, and they're like, oh, it is expedient that one man should die for the sake of the people. In fact, in verse 57, it says, no, verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So the, the decision is made. Yeah, we're going to execute this guy. I can see all the demonic chords like, yeah, touchdown. They're, they're like high-fiving you with me? Because they're like... And then, you know what the angelic, the angelic hosts are doing over here? Any guesses? I think they're snickering. They're like, <laughs> And then demonic are like, what are you guys laughing at? Nothing. Because listen to what happens, what the next words are of Psalm 2. I think it's in verse 4. Sorry, gentlemen, kind of out of order. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Like, you know what? Bring it. All get together. Rise up against the king. Rise up against the anointed one. And, and all that we are going to do is laugh. And we'll find out why. Look what happens. Um, this is the unstoppable redemption of Jesus Christ. Look at in verse 51 and 52. 
Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So what John is telling us is that, is that like Caiaphas and all of his treachery and all of his scheming and all of his political maneuvering is simply caring about the purposes of God. Like the worst that like, the rulers of Israel could bring was to accomplish the redemptive purposes of God. So he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. In fact, you see a sense of this, this purpose in it because it says Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And again, I, what I was saying is that he's not just high priest for a year, but he's saying that year, the year that was the high point of all human history that, that brought about the redemption of, of Jesus Christ and the deliverance from sin, the oppression of the enemy, that year, that momentous, like, year that changed everything. Caiaphas was the guy that was high priest that year. So he made this prophecy. He made this prophecy that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation and not for the nation only, but so that the people of God who were scattered abroad could be brought together into one so he could establish his church. You know, and those of us that are part of the church, like we need to remember that all that the nations scream and rage about is just vanity and emptiness before the purposes of God. The early church understood this. If um, Caiaphas doesn't disappear from the story, in fact, Caiaphas was kind of just a general all-arounder, big. Um, he had like blood on his hands, not just from Jesus, but, but Peter and John, when they were uh, threatened and then later beaten, Caiaphas was the high priest presiding over that. Caiaphas was the high priest presiding over the stoning of Stephen when Stephen like gave his life for the testimony of Christ. But in Acts chapter 4, we kind of see Caiaphas pop back up, and that's in the situation with, with Peter and John. Peter and John had, had, preached the God, had healed a person, they'd preached the gospel, and then the Sanhedrin, they were like, mm, we don't like this, and I think it's in Acts 4, verse 24. No, verse, what's the other one, Jen, before this? Acts 4, verse 5. After they had done this miracle, it says this, on the next day, now listen, their rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, the elders, that's these respected leaders within the city, and the scribes, who were mostly Pharisees, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, that's the grandpa, the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. Here you have the same group of treacherous people gathered together again, and Peter and John brought before them. And that group of people who had just executed Jesus 50 days before, a little bit more than 50 days before, threatened Peter and John, if you keep talking about Jesus, we're going to kill you too. So Peter and John went back to the church. And, and um, I want us to focus a little bit about the, the response of the church because they got this truth that, that all of the kingdoms like, rising up against Jesus amount to nothing. Because look what it says in Acts 4, verse 24. Peter and John relayed to them, to the church, what had happened. And it says this, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Let me just pause there for a second. 
Um, when, you, when you're in your Bibles, at least my Bible does this, when you see all caps like that, it's not because the church is shouting. Um, the all caps means that, that they're quoting from the Old Testament. They're actually quoting from Psalm 146. And in Psalm 146, I think it's two verses before this, it says, Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation, but put your trust in the Lord who made the earth, the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Like, don't trust in political powers, Psalm 146 tells us. Trust in the Lord who made all things and who reigns over all things. And then, then their prayer goes on. Who by the mouth through, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your father, David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? That's a quote from Psalm 2 that we just looked at. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now listen, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. To do to whatever your hand and your purpose, there it is, predestined to occur. Do you hear that? Herod and Pontius Pilate, the people of Israel, our, our rulers, all gathered together against Jesus to accomplish what? Whatever God predetermined was going to happen. Like there is no power that can stand against the redemptive purposes of God. In fact, what the scriptures would show us over and over and over and over again is that the treachery of men ends up just accomplishing the purposes of God. So they pray this prayer. And we're not going to trust in princes. We're going to trust in the creator of all things. No matter what rises up against us, it's just emptiness. And God's purposes will continue to move forward. And then look at their prayer request. And at the very end, they finally make a request at the very end of this prayer. It's in verse... Oh, here it is. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. That's the first request. They're not asking him to even do anything about it. They're just like, hey, pay attention to their threats. Write it down. They know that they can trust the Lord to do what he wants to do with that. Take note of their threats. Their second request, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Then they go on, but explaining that a little bit. There's two requests. God, just pay attention. And two, give us confidence and boldness to speak your word and its opposition because that's what you're doing in this world. The early church understood that. The earlier church understood that God's purposes in this world had to do with what Caiaphas talked about, that he would die for his people and that he would gather them together into one, the church that his redemptive purpose and his establishment of the church is central to what God is doing. And so they weren't going to like lose sight of that. They were able to trust God with all of like the political stuff all around them. And they kept focus on those two things. We want to speak the word with all confidence because it's the word of God that gives birth to the church so that you can gather us together, everybody that's scattered abroad. Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, white, black, Latino, so that everybody scattered, scattered abroad could be gathered together into 
one. Let me just stop here and just talk a little bit about application because as we're going through this, it speaks directly to kind of like our posture towards, um, towards government, right? Because all of these people that were scheming against Jesus here, Psalm 2, it's all talking about human government. And it would be easy for us to like just walk away with the application where like, oh, it doesn't, like we should just like ignore all things government, right? And just focus on the gospel. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I am trying to say is that this text and others like it help us like view government and view like the kingdom of God with their proper weight. Human government is important. Like God has ordained human government and he's ordained human government to create the context where humanity can flourish. Like government at, his, at its best works to create, a, to create a culture where we as men and women can flourish in our lives. In fact, it says, it says that in Proverbs 29.4, talking about justice, which is making right judgments about things. By justice, a king builds up the land. Like God wants that. And if, and if God cares about government, like we should too. Like we should care about like our government making decisions that will lead to like humanity flourishing. Because if we don't do that, like we're not loving our, our, neighbor, loving our neighbor well. Because to love our neighbor, we want to provide the context for them to like grow and to flourish. So should, we should care deeply about things like uh, about things about like when life begins, and how all of our legislation around life affects things. We should care deeply around things about sexuality and gender and what God says like like the flourishing like life that He's created for us to live in should be lived in as we live as embodied men and women. We should care deeply about what he says about caring for the poor, about the, the orphan and the, and the foreigner. We should care deeply about what he says about like race and about like what our experience of, our, of like our neighbors are who might have a different skin color than we have. Like we should care deeply about all those things. And we should seek to see like legislation and politics happen in a way that's going to cause right judgments to be made so that the land can be built up and people can flourish. But that being said, the scriptures also teach us that government is not an end in itself. It's not the ultimate thing. In fact, government exists for something even greater. It serves a greater purpose. Uh, it's in, you don't need to turn there. I have it on the screen. 1 Timothy 2. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy, and he's, Timothy's a pastor of a church, and so Paul's telling Timothy to instruct the church, and he says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he defines what those all people are. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let me stop there for a second. What Paul's telling Timothy is like, you need to encourage the church to pray for your governing leaders so that you can what, lead a peaceful and quiet life. That idea is that we would have peace. Like, we wouldn't be overrun by crime. We wouldn't be invaded by foreign nations. We wouldn't be like, you know, you, you talk about like when, when that situation breaks down, like in Syria or in other countries that are just torn by like, like strife. And that idea of quiet life is like this tranquil, tranquil, restful, peaceful sort of life. God desires that for his people, and we should be praying to that end that we could live this life godly and dignified in every way. But that's not the end. Listen to the next verse. This is good, and it is 
pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now think about the connection between those. We're to live this peaceful life, this quiet life, this life that that uh, in all godliness and dignity, but that's not the end, not so we can have a big 401k and we can live comfortably and have like extra time to stream like Netflix. <laughs> he has a higher purpose. That, that government is to create this culture so that... Go back one more because I just lost my place. Because he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on. For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who died for the people, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So here's the weight. You've got human government, which is important. And it's important that we care about those things. But the United States can come burning down tomorrow in like a... In like a apocalypse of nuclear like explosion who knows right get burned to the ground creeks that get burned to the ground with it but you know what won't stop the redemptive purposes of christ the 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 gathering together of one people into one body glory to jesus jesus promised like i will build my church and the gates of Hades, not even death itself, will be able to stand against it. So you have one that has, that has temporal significance, and it's important, but then you have one that has eternal significance that like outweighs it all. So here's my challenge to you. If you're one of those people that cares deeply about politics, I'm thankful for you. I'm not, I, I'm not one of those. I just get frustrated and just get frustrated, and then you don't want to know. I'm thankful for you, but if, if, you, if your passion, if you're passionate about your, your politics and your party and your positions and you're complacent about the kingdom of God and the work of the gospel and the establishment of, of Christ's church, you're like off balance because the, the scales are different. Like one has eternal weight. One is just temporal. One day, all of those nations will be brought under Jesus Christ. You know, when I was in middle school, I mean, my son-in-law, Pierre, who was a basketball player, knows this. Like, I cannot play any sport that involves a ball. <laughs> basketball, football, tennis. I, I tried pickleball this week, and I actually, uh, there was like the sixth grader who I lost to. We were one and one but <laughs> that's the best I've ever done in, in a, a ball-related sport. And you would think, I'm tall enough, I should do, you know, but no. But I remember in middle school, we were, uh, and I was going, I went to this little middle, this little, like, middle school, and I was on the basketball team and did a great job just securing that bench to the ground. And, um, <laughs> and we were playing in this tournament that was up at Concordia College up in uh, Portland. And when you're just a like, little middle schooler, and this would have been like 1970-something, that was a big deal to be in this, like, college court, even though it wasn't, it's this huge gym, and we're playing in this tournament, and I'm sitting on the bench, and I can't even remember if we're winning or losing, but our star player had been, I don't even remember his name now, which tells you how important some of these things that we make such a big deal of, but he was on the bench, he was about ready to get sent back in, 
And he gets sent back in. They pass the ball into him. He goes running down the court, like breaking away from everybody, like leaving everybody just like standing there. Everybody's cheering. No, everybody's yelling. And he makes the basket, only then realizing that he was going the wrong way. <laughs> True story. True story. I mean, it wasn't because he wasn't a great, he was a great basketball player, but all of his skill was focused on the wrong hoop. And I think that can easily be our case when we get, and maybe in our hearts it's that same way. Maybe we're not like passionate about like these things at the expense of something else that's more important. But maybe we're, maybe we're fearful or anxious or angry or whatever those things are that drive us. And we've lost sight of the fact that we don't put your trust in princes and immortal man in whom there's no salvation. Because God's the one who's created the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And even if all the nations rise up together against Jesus Christ, like, the, guess what God's response is? He who sits in the heavens laughs. And look what he says. Do I have that anymore of Psalm 2? I don't know. Let me just turn there. I'm not really following my notes if you haven't picked up on that. <laughs> Psalm 2. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, listen, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. And he's going to, and from there, he's going to come and judge the living and the dead, right? It goes on. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Talking about Jesus in Psalm 2, thousand years before he came. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will shatter, you will break them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like earthenware. That's the God that we worship. All the nations are his inheritance. All the powers of the world are just like a laughable or a laughable op opposition to the kingdom. So my challenge to us this morning from this text, as, as the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Roman powers behind them all rose up against Jesus Christ, it only seeked to further the purposes of God. So we can rest in that a little bit. But I'm not saying don't care about politics, care about them. We need to love our neighbor well and our city well, and we should be people that pray to that end, who work to that end, who strive to that end, who seek to see just laws established because that's what's going to like, benefit our neighbor the best. But that has much less weight than the kingdom of God, this purpose of God from all eternity that Christ would die for his people and that he would gather into one people scattered abroad, his church. I don't know what spirit might want to do with you and in, in your heart with those things, but I think we're all at different places. But let me just close with this. And worship team, like youth, you can, guys can come back up. Um, you guys, I've really enjoyed your leading this today, so thank you. But uh, let me just close with this. Um, it's, it's a book, uh, I think I have it here. It's a book by Jonathan Lehman. If you're interested in, in kind of wrestling through these Okay, I don't have it here. Um, 
if you're interested in wrestling through these things, it's, it's a book by Jonathan Lee, Lehman called How the Nations Rage. Uh, he's taking that from Psalm 2, and it's all about like a Christian's relationship to politics. But this is what he says. A Christian's political posture, in a word, should never be withdraw, nor should it be dominate. It must always be represent. We represent Jesus Christ. He goes on. Anyone who tells you withdraw, we're losing, or push forward, we're winning, may have succumbed to a kind of utopianism as if we could build heaven on earth. Instead, heaven starts in our assemblies, even if only as in a mirror dimly. Christians are heaven's ambassadors and our churches are its embassies. Now listen, neither panic nor triumphalism become us. Isn't that what those two things in Psalm, in, in Psalm 2 and, Act, and Psalm 146 tell us? Like, don't trust in princes. Like, don't be triumphant when your guy wins. Nor panic when everybody rises against you because all the nations could rise up against you and God's purposes are only going to move forward. Neither panic nor triumphalism where was I? Um, become us a cheerful confidence does. We represent this heavenly and future kingdom now, whether the skies are cloudy or clear. Indeed, here's the irony we will discover at the end of our rethinking. The church's political task is unchanging. Until Christ returns, the nations will rage and plot in vain. We, meanwhile, point to the Lord and to his anointed, both in word and deed. We're on the right side of history so long as we stand with the Lord of history. His vindication will be our vindication. Like we have this task to love our city well, to love our neighbor well, to love like the, the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we should let our priorities be his and trust in him no matter what, whether it's, what is it? Whether the skies are cloudy or clear. So why don't you guys close this and I'll close this in prayer.